Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusion apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold brew. This is She's on Call, a weekly show hosted by ENT specialist Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar and general surgeon Dr. Marina Kurian. They'll be joined by guest experts to discuss an array of newsworthy medical and health issues. You're invited to ask the doctors anything. The physicians and their guests' views are their own and do not represent any institution. Please contact your doctor for any personal questions. Please hit share and join us live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at She's On Call. Hashtag She's On Call. Please welcome our hosts. Hello, I'm Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon practicing in uh, Midtown, New York City, and Wayne, New Jersey with ENT and Allergy Associates. I'm Marina Curry, and I'm a general surgeon, and they do a, a fair amount of weight loss surgery and weight loss counseling in New York City. You're always trying to throw me off. <laughs> I always know game we play, but it's cool. I'm into it now. <laughs> I wake up at 4 o'clock, imagine what I'm going to introduce myself as, and then I go back to sleep. <laughs> and this is for show number 30, you guys. We have been, she's on call. This is show number 30. We're so proud of all of our previous episodes. We've had wonderful guests on. And this episode, we're going to take it back to the roots, I think, a little bit in terms of we're so out of touch with med school. The surgeon had this great idea. Let, we need to get medical students on. We need to let everybody know what's happening. Yeah. And I think particularly on this weekend, when we reflect and remember the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and... Um, uh, all that he talked about in terms of service and equality, uh, medical students who are active in terms of social justice are whom we are featuring today. Right. So our, our stay tuned for our guests. Our guests are going to be Lashara Lash Nolan and Alec Kalik, and both are medical students. Uh, Lash is the Harvard Medical School class of 2023, the first black woman president of the student council. Alec is earning his MD and his PhD from UCSD, and he's a proud member of the Palma Band of the Luceno Indians. And both of our guests are not only medical students, which believe me, in this year, this day uh, with COVID and everything else and getting all the education in, it's hard enough, but they're also really social justice warriors. Please, uh, we're going to meet them in a few minutes, but please take this time to sort of share and like and tag any of your friends who will be interested in uh, learning how these uh, young people got into medical school and what they're doing with their education. Uh, we are uh, live on Facebook, on Twitter, and on YouTube. We are closed captioned on YouTube for anyone who has some uh, hearing issues. And we are carried on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, so 
we're going to talk um, as we always do of this, uh, you know, next year, next year, we're not going to talk about COVID, right? I mean, like, we'll, I hope, right. I can, I, we can only hope. So this, we're right at the first death that occurred from COVID-19 infection in the U.S. Uh, it's been a year and there are a lot of stats that are going now. We can see that like, this is the worst year in review that we could possibly have. Right, Suju? Yeah. Yeah, this was not how we anticipated it as we turned the clock from 2019 to 2020. Uh, like you said, Marina, a year ago, the U.S. had its first death from COVID-19. Um, and unfortunately, we have uh, increased the number of illnesses and deaths exponentially uh, in this country and throughout our world. We have some statistics that are quite sobering uh, that we'd like to share with you. Uh, in the world, there have been 94 million cases of COVID-19 uh, and 2 million deaths from COVID-19, but there have been an additional 500,000 or half a million deaths worldwide that were uh, more than you would anticipate normally. So we can assume that those were either related secondarily to COVID or because of delays in care due to COVID. Um, it took the world nine months to get to the first one million deaths and only three months to get to the second million deaths. Um, and as of today, 230 million Europeans are in full lockdown because the virus is so not contained. And Marina, maybe you can talk to us about the U.S. numbers. I will, but I, well, what I was going to just say was that I'm in contact with a lot of our international um, surgical colleagues, and they're on shutdown. Some of them are, are on shutdown for elective cases. Obviously, emergency cases have to go. Um, but if we look at that slide again of the U.S. cases that we've had, we have, I think it said 94 million on the slide, if we could pop it back up, um, 94 million, uh, oh no, that, 94 worldwide, 20, almost 24 million uh, cases in the U.S. and 400,000 deaths so far. 4,000 currently is the number of deaths per day in the U.S. And we're also just hit a high of 240,000, but I think it's actually 250. So in two days, we're going to be at 24 million uh, cases in the U.S. And the good news is at least, and we had a slide last week where we showed the good news is that we're doing much better in terms of the death rate in, in different regions compared to what we saw in New York back in March, April, and May. So there's there's hope and there's we've learned so much on how to treat um, these cases and not to necessarily go right to the ICU and right to putting a breathing tube in. We've learned a lot this past year. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've also remarkably the vaccines were developed and tested and are safe. And Marina, you got your second dose today, so I'm incredibly jealous. That if, 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 guys, yeah, if I have a reaction. We can, we can live tweet it. <laughs> Call I mean, it like, no watch show ever. Watch Marina get carted out. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. no, just kidding. Listen, I'm not kidding about the reactions. They they definitely are, are can occur, but they're not common. And I think that's the important thing to realize. And if you do have severe allergies, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little later, you need to exercise some caution. But the majority of people are doing fairly well with these vaccinations. 
And, you know, just getting a vaccine and getting both doses, which is the full vaccine, does not mean you get to stop wearing your mask. So really, the way we're going to stop the spread of this virus is by continuing to wear a mask and wash our, watch our distance from each other, not go into crowded environments uh, indoors, and even keep the numbers outdoors limited and distant. And it's really important that you wear your mask properly. So this is a mask, guys. This is how you wear it, over your nose, under your chin, and then you just talk. You don't do this to talk. You don't do this to wear your mask. You don't put it over here. You just wear it like a normal person covering your mouth, your nose, your chin, and just talk through it. And I think if we keep doing that, we're going to do really well. We did want to just review with you guys the symptoms to look for in COVID because it is still quite rampant. Uh, throughout. So you're going to look for these symptoms um, uh, as you, you know, if you experience any of these, please um, notify your healthcare provider. So cough, fever, chills, muscle pains, headaches, shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. Like if you're on a Zoom call and you really can't get the paragraph out, if you have a sore throat, um, if you're fatigued, and very particularly, the new loss of sense of smell or taste is very particular to COVID. So some of these symptoms can mimic a cold or a flu. No one's getting a diagnosis of COVID without a nasal swab, a PCR swab to prove it. But especially if you have all these symptoms and, and that loss of smell or taste, really be aware that this may be the problem. You know, the other thing quickly was the flu, right? We have mm -hmm. not heard a lot about the flu. What's the good news in, in this horrible pandemic is that if you wear a mask and you don't go out when you're sick and you're, you know, not sneezing and hacking over everything, that you can actually prevent the flu. So what we have seen is that flu numbers are very, very low this year, like like almost, not, I don't want to say it's zero because somebody will have the flu, but we're not seeing 40,000 to 80,000 deaths from the flu worldwide this year. And it has a tremendous amount to do with um, this social distancing, wearing the mask, washing your hands, and, and really most important, not going out when you're sick, which which is hard. Like I'm a professional and sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, do I have a fever? It's kind of low grade. I think I can still go in today. You know, you, we, we push ourselves and, and what this pandemic has shown us is don't push yourself because you can actually hurt other people. Yeah, I think um, we've learned a lot this past year, and I think that's really the lesson to take home. We want to bring on our guests, so let's remind you guys we're live on Twitter, on YouTube, and on Facebook. Uh, we are carried on WBAI 99.5 FM and 99, sorry, WBAI.org on Monday afternoons. And we are so happy to introduce our two guests today. They are medical students who are leaders and activists. Um, they are living the words of Reverend Martin Luther King that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Our guests today are Lashira Lash Nolan from Harvard Medical School in Boston and Alec Kalik from University of California, San Diego Medical School. Um, as Marina said, Lash is the student council president of the class of 2023, the first African-American woman to have reached that position. Alec is an MD, PhD, double doctoral candidate in global health and is a member, a proud member of the Palma ba Band of Luiseno Indians. Welcome, Lash and Alec. Uh, good morning. 
Good morning. Thank you guys for joining us. Especially Alec, it's kind of earlier for you, but you know, you're a medical student. You're probably not sleeping in all that often. Oh, not these days. And my roommate is currently on surgery, so I'm waking oh. up at 4.30. Oh, God. Yeah. Those we, we uh, virtual rounds would be better, but that's not happening. <laughs> so Lash, welcome as well. Tell us what's going on out in, in Boston. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is an honor. I'm so excited to be joined by Alec. Um, but yeah, things things are going down in Boston. I'm in my second year of medical school at HMS. That's when we start our clinical rotations. So I'm at Cambridge Health Alliance, which is an amazing place to, to be. So I've been having a really good time learning a lot of medicine and surrounded by great people. So both of you as second years, you're just starting your rotations and during the year last year in 2020, were you guys um, pulled at all or deployed at all? Because there was some talk about doing that at the different medical centers. So I was uh, studying for step one. So I was pretty much locked in my room uh, preparing for the test. But our third year and fourth year clinical students were pulled for about about two months uh, before um, we implemented the correct procedures to have students uh, return to the clinic. And I think I was really, really excited to see the energy that went into redesigning clerkships in a way that was safe, um, as well as ensuring that, you know, medical students are really an essential part of the team. Um, and that was, that really came across from our leadership. Um, so students um, really, you know, recognize that they could still be doing something from home. Um, and they made sure to, you know, do virtual rounds, do discharge summaries from home. Um, so they made sure that they were still, you know, contributing in this, you know, wild time for everyone. So, you know, it's, um, it's pretty hard to get into medical school. Uh, only about 40%, 35 to 40% of people who apply to medical school or osteopathic school, which both ends up being a doctor, um, actually get in. And uh, I'm wondering if you can talk to us uh, about your journey. There's a lot of words of welcome and um, support coming in from Memphis, from Puerto Rico, from Washington, DC. So um, our audience is very happy to have you here. But Lash, can you tell us a bit about your journey uh, to medical school? Yes, absolutely. And just before we went on, I saw that Miss um, Sunny said that her son was going to Howard and is going to medical school. So much love and, and positive vibes on his journey. Um, but I just want to say my name is Lash and I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, and I was raised by this amazing woman, Ty Harps, who raised me as a single mother most of our lives. And she was the first person in our family to both get her bachelor's and her master's degree. And it was through seeing her grind out, work hard every day that I really learned to value education. And I really started to see myself as someone who could go to college and pursue all these things. So when I was in third grade, we had a science fair. And the day before the science fair, I told my mom that I had to do a project for the science fair. So she took me to the store and we got some goldfish and put together this project looking at how fish respond to light. And I was like, this is so cool. And I ended up getting first place at the Ambler Elementary School um, for... 
Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable for this for the science fair project and it was that same year that I dressed up as a doctor for Halloween and ever since then I told my family that I wanted to be a brain surgeon astronaut and that was the dream I was like let me let me just do both (laughs) (laughs) why not why not that already happened you know that right there's a neurosurgeon who became an astronaut Yes, yes. on his name but I listened to a wonderful lecture that he gave at one of our surgical meetings well, oh, my Mae Jemison is a physician, a dancer, an engineer, an astronaut. She's got like nine lives at Mae Jemison. So yeah, why not? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So despite me, be, me being the first to, to think about these things, I'm the first person in my family to get a bachelor's in the sciences and to pursue a career in medicine. Um, I had people around me who always spoke life into my dreams. And that those folks were primarily my mother and my grandmother. And I, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. And I'm really thankful for the different pipeline programs that allowed me to afford to um, study and for the impact and to, to get the, the, the necessary experience that I need to apply to medical school because it's not always readily available for first-gen folks. So, you know, I think uh, you talk about what exams you have to take and what majors you have to pursue. So we have this uh, slide that sort of looks like a rainbow, but it shows that you actually don't only have to do hard sciences, you know, biology or physics or something. Um, Most kids who, most people who apply to medical school um, are doing majors in sciences, but we have students coming in who've had majors in the arts, majors in health and engineering and a plethora of others. So what you do have to do though, is take those prerequisites and take the MCAT, which is the medical college admissions test. And Alec, maybe you can, I'm sorry to give you PTSD this early in the morning, but maybe you can talk to us because we do have uh, people listening in and watching us who either want to get into medical school or want their kids to get into medical school. And maybe you can talk to us about that MCAT process and the interview process to actually get in. And also your journey, like how you got to want to be a doctor. Sure. Um, you know, I, I was born and raised in San Diego, um, love the West Coast. And, you know, I was pretty shy growing up. I was always you know, locked in my room playing video games. And it wasn't until the eighth grade that my father and my science teacher got me off the couch and were like, you're going to do the science fair. Um, and I did this wonderful project um, combining, you know, Western science and traditional Indian medicine um, and looked at the antibacterial properties of Southern California native plants. Um, ended up getting second place. But that one event, you know, put that spark in my mind that, you know, I could I could do something. Um, you know, there's more than that video game. And I, you know, was always, you know, so interested in math and science. But when I applied to college, um, I got rejected from virtually every California um, school that I applied to, including UC San Diego and San Diego State, where I now am. And I had to trade the West Coast for the Sonoran Desert. And I went to the University of Arizona. And while I was there, um, 
I had all these mentors that took an interest in you know my aspirations and they saw this potential in me that I didn't always see in myself. So, you know, thinking of, you know, what's the process to apply to medical school? How do you do it? Those mentors were so important because I was completely unaware that medical schools didn't have universal admissions requirements. Some required you to take a sociology course or a psychology course. So get that mentor, um, you know, in the interview process, you need to practice. You know, I um, barely practiced for my interviews and kind of my real interview was my first time for many schools. Um, but I'm so happy to end up at UC San Diego. I'm in San Diego State and now they're stuck with me for eight years. Um, so, it, you know, it worked out in the end. That's really, um, you know, it's interesting. Why, why, I want to I go back to something you said. Why do you feel that you didn't get to any of the University of California um, system. By the way, University of Arizona, great school. Also, oh, it's wonderful. Bear down. Um, you know, I'm to this day, I'm not too sure. Um, but what I do know is that the University of California is a land grant institution, um, which means that um, the president gave thousands of acres of land um, expropriated from Indian people to establish universities for the purpose of agriculture, and the UC system is built on my people's land and it's built on the land of hundreds of California tribes. And those students aren't represented in the UC system because it is so selective. So you see students that have to leave where they're from and for a native person, they have to leave where their community is in order to attend higher education. So it's unclear to me, but I really think there's an obligation to keep our people you know, where we're from. That's that is um, I so powerful. I I I know that at Cornell uh, in New York, right? That's a land grant, and I know there are other schools across the country that are. But I didn't realize. I just thought they gave land for the institution to have it. I didn't okay. realize. Well, here, have our land. Thank you. What? Here, have our land, Lisa. May I have another? Right. I mean, there's no idea that that's where it came from. And I think that the California system should be really ashamed of itself. That's dreadful. Now, in Arizona, there, there are a lot of tribes as well. Um, and, and I think I, I've been very close to one of the, the reservations. I kind of took a wrong turn and drove in a little bit. And I was like, oh, it works. I took the, yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it was not that far outside of Phoenix uh, when that occurred. So is it's just, is there more support, you think, in Arizona for uh, Native Americans? It really depends on the relationship that universities have with their, you know, the people um, and the land that they occupy. And what I really think is it didn't start as an institutional commitment. It started as, you know, the initiative of an Indigenous faculty member who, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago said, you know, our institution needs to be responsive to our community. So a lot of the programs that we see today are the results of those efforts. Um, in 1969, there were just 29 Native American medical doctors. And that, you know, has grown exponentially. But, you know, I think it's really, we have to thank the previous generation for ensuring, you know, these programs exist, especially for Native Americans going into medicine. We have a slide that we'd like to show kind of gives us the breakdown of um, what's happening, you know, uh, in med schools. 
somewhat as a representation of what's happening in our ethnic mix in the US. So if we can pop up that slide um, and you can see what our population is and see that about 63% of medical students are white. It's very similar to the US population. But where we see the decreases are in the African-American community, the Latin community, and Native American and Alaskan Native versus um, we see here that it's the population is 5% Asian, but when you look at med schools, it's about 14% Asian. So there's, I guess, the Asian population a little overrepresented in, um, in, in the med school distribution. But and you know, I, I don't know if you can see it, but there's actually a gray line for American Indian and Native Alaskan, and it's just about at the zero mark. So uh, I think this is where um, the underrepresentation of very important people in our country in our medical school pipeline, so to speak, is um, is highlighted. Um, Lash, you talked about um, you wrote a, a single author piece in New, in the New England Journal of Medicine last year, which made me crazy because oh my God, how many of us old people wish we had done this, right? But you taught it's a really big deal. But you talked about how medical education is missing the bullseye. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, well, first, I just want to say thank you for the the wisdom that Alec just dropped, because I think that that's something that I'm also continuing to learn about is just this consistent erasure of indigenous peoples. And I think it's something that we need to continue to keep at the forefront of our conversations. And I think that that's definitely part of the reason why I wrote this piece, how medical education is missing the bullseye, because in my first year of medical school, as we were learning medicine, I realized that the representation of people that looked like me and people who really uplifted me, I said earlier that I wouldn't be here if it weren't for my community. They weren't being represent, represented in the, in the educational material that we were being taught. So number one, when we were learning how to do PPR, all of the bodies were white male bodied. When we were learning anatomy, all of the skin was represented as white in the Netter's textbooks that we were using. And then when we were in class learning about the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi that causes Lyme disease, and we learned about stage one and how you can get this rash called erythema migrans, um, a classmate of mine raised his hand and said, hey, how would I recognize this rash in someone who had skin like mine? And he was a black man and the professor really failed to give him an adequate answer and said, hey, you know, it might look more purple. It, it, it's difficult to, to notice at times. And that was the end of the conversation. And then upon doing further research, I tweeted about it, people were really fired up and they also agreed. I realized that there weren't a lot of representation of the rash erythema migrans on black skin, on social media, on, on Google, or really in our educational material. And that's what really prompted me to write this piece because after I did more research, I learned that black folks are, are more likely to present with later stage Lyme disease. And part of that is because we're not taught to recognize this key in stage one that can happen about 40% of patients. So I think that that was just reflective of the way that we were being presented statistics and how we never get context about why black folks, indigenous people have disproportionate amounts of diabetes, hypertension and chronic diseases, which are often a manifestation of racism. And I think that that's how we're missing the bullseye. We're not giving folks the context that they need to understand these statistics. Neither are we giving the, the representation that folks need so that they can go out and serve a diverse patient population. You know, after I read your piece, I went back because uh, you, you did a play on words. A bullseye rash is the typical rash seen with early Lyme disease, right? And 
I, I went back and there's, there's a couple of publications out there looking at the way different skin diseases are manifest in non-Caucasian skin. Uh, we did talk with uh, Dr. Doris Day and Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh on this show about the differences in presentation in skin of different color of everything, vitiligo, you know, white spots look really different on black skin than on white skin, right? And on brown skin and yellow skin than on white skin. So um, you really propelled me to go forward with my continuing medical education in a in a avenue that I maybe had thought about and really maybe had not thought about. So I want to thank you for that. Um, you know, you both are at um, white majority medical schools. You're at Harvard Lash and Alec, you're at UCSD and San Diego State. Um, Sonny Slaughter's son is going to go to Howard and we have actually the very first Native American medical school opened in 2020. So 2020 was not completely a bust. Um, and it's part of the Cherokee Nation and it opened uh, at Oklahoma State University. And we have four uh, HBCUs, historically black college and university medical schools, Howard, Charles Drew in L Howard's in Washington, DC, Charles Drew in LA, Meharry, which is in Nashville and Morehouse, which is in Atlanta. Can um, you talk to us about the importance of these medical schools uh, and their existence? Sure. You know, I you know I look at the new Cherokee Nation Medical School and really ask myself, what does tribal sovereignty look like in healthcare? And that medical school is the prime example. Um, the Cherokee Nation invested over forty million dollars on that campus, and it's not just training you know, non-Native medical students who will go on and serve the needs of Native people. It's training Cherokee medical students to serve the Cherokee people. And that's, I think, what's missing in this conversation about workforce, the primary care shortage, where the Indian Health Service today has a physician vacancy rate that averages about 25%. And in the Midwest, that can be, you know, going up to 50% today. Um, and that was pre-COVID, and we've only seen that exacerbated by our current public health crisis. So, you know, you really have to train a workforce that is reflective of the population. And, you know, to put it into context, in my case, um, at UC San Diego, I am the first California Indian to ever attend the medical school there, which means that in 52 years, a California Native person has never gone to medical school at UC San Diego. And that's not unique to my medical school. That's across the board. So we really have to think about who's here and who's not here. And I'm so happy that Lash also talked about, you know, really contextualizing inequities, because I feel like we focus a lot on the what, but not the why. Um, and that distinction is so important. It's, it's shocking to me that I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're the first, but it is also devastating that that it's 2000. And so you started in 18, 2018, yeah, 20, 2018. And I'm I'm not celebrating. <laughs> no, it's a celebrate. Celebrate yourself. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. 
proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain planner features. See T-Mobile.com. Frankly, because, you know, somebody's got to be the first, and the first opens the door to the second, the third, the fourth, the 20th, right? So celebrate yourself, because these are really important, important accomplishments. You know, Radhika Lakshman wrote in, and she's watching from the Middle East, and she said, what can we do to, to change? You are the change. You are the, you too are the change we wish to see, right? So, um, we have an, as the new administration comes in, the new director of the interior, the cabinet level position is being held by a Native American for the very first time in the history of our country. So celebrate yourselves, celebrate the, opening of the dialogue because the floodgates do open when you see one or two or three or four people um, taking this role. You know, I had the opportunity to serve at the Indian Health Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona for two weeks during my residency. One of our graduates uh, from NYU had gone there and he uh, very graciously volunteered to host us uh, for a couple of weeks on a rotation. And not only did I deliver care in Phoenix, but we got into little tiny planes and we flew out like to the Northern Rim of the Grand Canyon, to these very remote tribal areas to deliver much needed healthcare, um, you know, in a big uh, production to get it there. And I'm saying that because as we talk about this vaccine rollout, there is a story that just came out there are 65 remote uh, Alaskan native elders who got their COVID vaccines from an all-woman team that went by car and by plane and by snowmobile to deliver the vaccines to each of these 65 people in these remote areas in Alaska. And I want to say that that's the, you know, Dr. Kath, uh, Katrina Bengard uh, was the physician on this all-woman team, which included nurses. Um, and I think that this is the change, again, that we want to see. It truly is. I want to say that, um, you know, while it is a devastation and you said you weren't celebrating, I think we have to look at it as the future is going to be brighter because of it. And I also really applaud both of you for not just going in quietly and not make a fuss. Like, you know, when I, when, when, when I was growing up here, um, I got here when I, in 1970. Don't anybody do any math, but I wasn't born there. Okay. So I'm just saying. Um, that my mom was always so big on, we have to be an ambassador for our people. So don't be too loud. Don't be this. Don't, you know, don't do different things. And I, and I was like, okay, well, ambassador for your people doesn't have to mean like, you know, lay low. 
And I think it's wonderful that the two of you uh, speak your truth, your voice, and you, you're loaning that to so many people to help understand what is going on. And I, and I really applaud both of you for that. Yeah. I'm so excited. You know, first I was like, oh, the medical students are coming on. Then I was like, you know what? This is going to be so awesome because you guys are our future. And, and truly, our future is really bright. Like, I'm, I love our medical students. I love the perspectives. Um, you bring, as you said, it's such a critical part of our team. You guys bring a lot more to the table while we're trying to teach you. And I'm always like, ask me questions. What do you want to hear? But, you know, don't think we're not learning. We, we're always ever learners in medicine and we're picking up a lot of stuff from you guys as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I just want to, to echo what Alec is really saying about the being the first. And I think that oftentimes, like, you know, even as I was the first black woman to be class president at HMS, I think it's, I think the reason why we're hesitant to just celebrate it is because it's like, look how long it took for us to get here. And even my being here doesn't remove the systemic barriers that make it challenging for there to be another Black woman in my same leadership position. And I think that sometimes when one individual from a community progresses, folks think that, oh, well, look, our work is done. For example, when Barack Obama became our first Black president of the United States, still under his presidency, there were a, a great amount of Black men who were disproportionately incarcerated. And we saw, you know, really challenging immigration and a, and a devastating impact um, on, on our on our neighbors. So I think that those are things that we always have to take into consideration is that even as we progress in leadership positions, we still have to make sure that we put respons the responsibility in, in, the, in the system and say that y'all need to do the work to make sure that the barriers are removed so that this can happen and it's no longer the exception but the norm. So AJ Nathan, who is a medical student at Boston University, so maybe you guys can like meet for coffee in, in a masked arena. Um, he is asking, can you speak to some of the challenges and successes you've had getting anti-racism initiatives off the ground at your institution, Lash? And then we'll ask the same question of Alec. Yeah, Ajay, I think I think that's a, an amazing and an important question. And I think the 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 major challenge at first was for getting people on the same idea that racism is in fact a public health concern, that racism is something that impacts our communities, our patients, our students, our faculty. And I think that now that racism isn't this taboo subject, like we're actually starting to have the conversation and it's a mandatory conversation. It's not lunch talks with pizza where all the black people are together talking about how their institutions are racist and how we need to change things. It's people who are in high places who are having conversations. But I think our greatest challenge moving forward is going to be now that racism and talking about anti-racism is the status quo, how do we make it so that people just aren't able to say we stand against racism and plaster that on the outside of their hospital or to come out with these policies and statements saying that they want to be anti-racist but how do we hold those individuals accountable how do we think about who has access to our hospitals if you're going to say you're anti-racist but you're not allowing folks who have medicaid to come into your hospital and you're actively contributing to the segregation of your communities i think that those are things that we really have to talk about how do we take this this momentum and translate it into actionable change and things that aren't just gonna make our institutions look good and to make sure that they're just not giving us lip service. And I think that that's gonna be the greatest challenge that we're gonna face moving forward with this movement. Alec, what do you think? 
No, that's a really great question, Ajay. You know, I I think, you know, at the heart of anti-racism is that you can't just denounce racism. You have to be anti-racist. And when I got to my institution, and I think Lash would agree with her as well, you know, we brought our whole selves to the medical school. We brought our community with us. And when we're not seeing resources and support allocated to these needs, we're going to say something. We're going to tweet something. We're going to write something. And in my case, I'm going to go to tribal governments and get something done. Uh, When I got here in 2018, I was the only American Indian medical student in my class of 134. The following year, there there was not a single tribal member in the class The year after, there were five American Indian medical students, a five-fold increase. And that's because I was loud and I brought, you know, brought attention to this issue. And, um, you know, when I look at U.S. medical schools, 11% of U.S. MD granting institutions teach something about Native American health, which means that the majority do not And you really have to be intentional and you have to shine a light on the ongoing, you know, the legacy and the ongoing impact of colonization on American Indian and Alaska Native people. Otherwise, you're not a healthcare professional who is fit to serve Indian country. Um, So I'm very happy to say that this fall, we're launching an American Indian and Alaska Native health academic concentration, which is an idea that I had just one year ago. And this fall, we're going to launch it as a full, fully fledged academic program. So, you know, I always like to say that advocacy means, um, you know, to change what is into what should be. Alec, that was a, 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 both of you had beautiful, really complete responses. And I was sitting here stunned and thankfully, Sujana was like, Alec, what about you? Because I was just like, wait. Um, But let's talk a little bit about how COVID is affecting communities. And Alec, you had um, sent us some slides and it just came out in the New York Times as well about how um, the Native American population is being affected by COVID-19. Now, the the devastation um, has really been outsized. You know, our elders are our most precious resource, you know, a source of knowledge, a connection to, you know, our ways of knowing. And a lot of the history of our people is oral. It's not written down. So when we see, you know, elders who are especially vulnerable to the pandemic, especially, you know, using the Navajo Nation as an example, 40% of homes on the Navajo Nation lack running water. So when your number one intervention for the pandemic is to wash your hands on a regular basis, how are you doing that? And, you know, we've seen mortality rates steadily climb up. And for many tribes, you know, a lot of them are a bit smaller. You know, they're 100 people, 200 people, 300 people. So it's very easy in these multi-generational households to infect your whole family. Um, And it's really been tragic. And I have yet to go back to my tribe. But I think the one thing that I want to leave with the audience is that we don't have the full data about what's happening on reservations because our people are being grouped into other or they're being grouped into multiracial because the sample sizes are too small. And data scientists and those who are visualizing the data can't do that because it obscures the 
horrible impact that it's had. You know, um, that graph that uh, you had alerted us to shows us that the people being hit the hardest in terms of deaths from COVID are in fact the black community and the Native American community. And you're absolutely right. Lumping people into a category of other or multiracial does not allow us to intervene to help uh, identify the difficulties of care for these people. You know, when we have two vaccines that both need um, really uh, cold freezers to maintain and you're trying to get them to tribal lands where there's no running water or electricity, this is where there are so many challenges um, that come into, into play. You know, we've talked a bit about social justice advocacy. Lash, you ran a uh, virtual session this past week on social justice advocacy and there was a Medscape uh, survey that shows that 88% of medical students felt that they needed more um, education in social justice advocacy. As Alex said, there's only 11% of uh, medical schools have anything to do with the Native American uh, health education. So can you talk to us about what this means and, and how it's implemented, um, Lash? Yeah, I mean, I think that this has very real implications for the quality of care that our communities receive. Because, you know, as Alex so brilliantly described, we've seen these inequities play out during COVID-19 that have disproportionately impacted indigenous peoples and black folks. And when, and I already kind of predicted that at some point I would be in a lecture hall and we will be talking about COVID and they would show us that exact graph and they would show that our communities have been disproportionately impacted, but we will have no understanding of how we got to this point. We'll have no understanding about why is it that we live, we're more likely to live in intergenerational housing. An understanding of how these folks are most likely to be essential workers on the front lines. The importance of understanding racial capitalism and how we've essentially, or our government has decided that they are going to prioritize profits over people and how that's then gonna spill over into why people do not trust the government, why they're more resistant to getting the vaccine. Because when you've been through an entire pandemic and our government, our leaders have shown that your life does not in fact matter, why is it that you're gonna trust them to take a vaccine? And I think that those are the conversations that we aren't having, especially when it comes around vaccine hesitancy. And I think that those are the conversations that medical students and future physicians and healthcare professionals generally must be able to have, because you have to understand the context behind these numbers and these statistics. And the fact that we have so many students who are hungry for this information, and right now these courses and information is only being taught as something that is, um, it's not mandatory, it's something that's optional, that absolutely has to change. We have to make sure that we're talking about racism, the history of colonization in this country as vital parts of our medical education because it's going to relate directly to how we provide care for these individuals. You know, Benam just wrote in that um, he or she is going to share this with their friends. And so many people have been writing in that you two are the best guests we've had on, uh, which, you know, I don't want to diss our other guests, but very eye opening. And you, you, your, your advocacy and that passion, we all have passion, like, you know, what passion I've left, you know, in, in, in this old body, but I, 
I'm very passionate about what I do and how I can take care of people and, and improve their health. But you guys are really not just talking about communities, but you're really talking about broad segments of our country that, that your advocacy is going to help and your Twitter, um, your tweets are going to make notice for the rest of the country and the people that, that need to see it. And, and I, I'm just, you know, like stunned by you two. You're really just completely amazing. And I cannot, I look forward to what you guys are going to do in the future and because it's just starting. But, you know, without this platform of, that you've already created to speak about these issues, you know, we, so many of our viewers and, and even I am just still stunned by the fact that UCSD never had a Native American, you know, these things that you, I don't think about. And I, it's just stunning. So I appreciate you guys coming on and it's not over yet. We still have more things to talk to you about. <laughs> you know, you guys are just so amazing. You know, um, there is, let's talk a little bit about why people might not go into vet school, right? Like there's graduate student debt. Um, we have a slide about how most of our medical students are graduating with more than 200000 sometimes $300,000 of debt. And that can be uh, a significant block for going to med school, because how do you make it up at the end? You know, we have two slides. One, I want to put up our medical student debt slide, and then I want to talk about the journey. So here it is. 50% of our medical students will have over $200,000 of debt. debt. And that's dramatic. That's crazy. That's, I mean, because I think people don't know that you just finished medical school and then you don't just randomly start a practice, right? Then you've got three to seven or more years of training. I, I had seven years more training after medical school. I think Marina, you had seven or eight years more training after medical school um, before you start earning. And I mean, you earn something in medical in uh, residency, but it, it doesn't pay back three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. Um, and then there's a, a slide that's a graphic from a place I think that helps you get to medical school, but it shows this sort of long and winding road from wanting to get into medical school to becoming a full-fledged doctor. So maybe Alec, do you mind just explaining for us what are the, the step tests and then what happens when, when you determine what you want your specialty to be? Sure. So I think it's a little bit lengthened out in my case because of my MD PhD program and that I'm doing two years of medical school, four, four years of graduate school, followed by the clinical training um, at UC San Diego. And, um, you know, the, before breaking for graduate school, I've, I took the U.S. medical licensing exam step one, uh, which is the first of three medical licensing exams and that you take step one and step two during medical school. And then you take um, step three during residency. And, you know, I think I have to tell you, step three is awesome because it's a day off from your internship. It is the most chill out day of your whole internship. You know, that was, in a room and take a time. that was back then, dude. It might not be that way now. <laughs> um, and I, I think for many who want to go into medicine, they think that the MCAT is the final exam and the last one that they're going to see. Because I'm, I'm not a big fan of standardized tests. And step one, you know, I took it uh, last July in, in the middle of a pandemic. And it was scary to take it 
on or to take it in person. And, you know, you saw mounting calls on the AAMC and medical schools to make the MCAT optional. And I'm so happy that students use their voice, um, the students for ethical admissions, and called attention to the unsafe conditions of requiring students to flaunt public health guidelines and take a test that can also be virtual. So, you know, it's a very long process. And I really have to go back to mentorship, because if you're not aware of the requirements, you're going to be behind. And that really should not be the case, especially for our minoritized students. You know, um, that that timeline that we showed, and, and yours is going to be longer, right? It, it, it doesn't end, as you said, there's the USMLE, there's step one, step two, step three. And then, it, you know, this particular graphic stops at board certification. No, as no, learners, yeah, we have to recertify. Um, we have to continue to learn. We add things. You know, I, I was a general surgery resident. Uh, reason my training took uh, so long is, you know, I did a little sidetrack. I did some molecular biology research. I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon. I ended up doing advanced laparoscopy. And uh, now I do primarily weight loss, but I do all minimally invasive. But I've learned to do other things. I've increased what I can do with endoscopic techniques. I've, I've changed. I've learned some ultrasound. Like you just, you, you're constantly sort of growing and honing your craft and it, it's never over, which shouldn't defeat anybody because it just means, you know, hey, we're still learning and, I, and, and we have to move with the times. And um, this is something I want to bring up, though, because my segue is move with the times. Sujana found this ACGME graphic on residencies mm -hmm. and who drops out of a residency, right? You guys are in med school, and now you're going to go to a residency. And if we can pop up this graphic. They're, I they're not dropping out. They're being asked to leave, which broke my heart. This, okay. this graph broke my heart. I, I asked her, I'm like, where did you find this? Like, I've never seen it. So we're going to put up the slide looking at. The uh, pipeline programs. programs. Right residency programs and who um, who was in it. So all smart, smart people to get into all these tracks. And then you can see how, based on the um, ethnic profile, et cetera, how these programs did in terms of keeping their recruits. Because we always have some dropout. And I always thought it was dropout. But this is dismissed by specialty, which I, I didn't catch the first time. But it's horrible. And if you see that you'll see that that uh, in particular, I mean, I'm calling out the orthopods, okay? This is a horrific, every single one of these is horrific, but the mere fact that this is out there in orthopedics has 31-fold dismissal of black residents over white and a, a almost 15-fold of Latin over white is just a horrific, um, it, it's really a tragedy, and I just... I'm, I'm appalled. I'm appalled by general surgery as well. It's sixfold more uh, black than white. And, you know, I don't see that. Actually, I'm at NYU. You guys have all your, your fleeces on. I had to take it off because of hot flag, which nobody wants to hear about, but I was wearing my <laughs> NYU Lambo and health. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is really why we go to medical that's really why. But at NYU Langone, I know for a fact, and especially in the Department of Surgery, thanks to the, thanks to the leadership of um, Dr. Leon Pachter and now Dr. Montgomery, we are extremely supportive of all of our residents. Uh, we have an incredible diversity of both faculty 
and and our our, our resident pool and I couldn't be happier. We had uh, one year we had all eight of our chiefs. Well, one of our chiefs was going into cardiac. Was, so he had done three years gen surge and then another three cardiac. So, but other than that, the eight chief residents in general surgery were all women. And um, we've been asked, each one of us, you know, if we see a resident in trouble or someone who's not doing so well, we actually, you know, uh, are asked by our chairman to kind of go and talk to them and create like that mentor-mentee bond to support them. It, seeing those numbers, I just didn't, I couldn't have imagined it. I, it even I trained at Albany Med. We just, we were supportive. I mean, hey, I got through, you know. Well, you know, I'll tell you, it's funny, Dr. Pachter, who we used to call Darth Vader because he was just tall and scary and the kindest man you ever met. He was in charge of the ER when I was a resident at NYU um, and uh, the general surgeon in charge of the ER. And um, he was somebody, he was one of the many people um, who do in fact mentor and sponsor and and see you for you and not your skin color or your gender or your sexual orientation or whatever. Um, but we, unfortunately, these numbers um, are accurate. And I think this is a failure, not of the student and not of the resident, but of the train, trainers, of the faculty, to see that people have different communication styles, different learning styles, different um, uh, bring different uh, fields to importance in terms of how they interact with patients. I wonder, Lash, if you can talk to this uh, in terms of the advocacy for um, non-majority uh, residents and trainees. Yeah. Um, well, the first comment that I want to make is that upon looking at that graph, I immediately recognized that there was an unknown category. And as Alex, so he's been very fervent in helping us understand how important it is that we do not group indigenous peoples in, in this category of unknown, because I think that if we were to disaggregate that data, it would be probably, unfortunately, even more devastating for their community. So I think that that's the first thing that, that I thought about as I looked at that. And I think the second piece is there's just so much racism in, ingrained in, in the medical system. And I think that it's it's great when folks say that, you know, I don't discriminate based on race or gender or ethnicity. Um, but I think it's important to understand that those individuals have very individualized and different experiences and are going to experience discrimination and racism in, in different ways. And they're going to need to be supported. And I think the fact that when you look at how many, for example, black women are in academic medicine, two percent. So when you're bringing in families to a system where they don't have people that look like them or can relate to their experience or support them, then of course it's going to be a challenging experience for them. And I think the other piece of it is that, you know, just in 2017, there was a report that showed that black Bostonians, their overall net worth is eight dollars compared to white Bostonians whose net worth is almost $250,000. So when you have that disparate amount of funding and support going into a career in medicine, where we do work as residents with not the, the greatest salaries and we're paying off all this debt, it's a hard career for people who are minoritized in our, in, our, in our field. So I think that these are all the different things that we have to consider moving forward and increasing the pipeline and making sure that we have representative data and understanding the whole picture will be really key parts to making sure that that happens. And, and one other thing, like, you know, it is also possible and, and, and likely because of 
I mean, I hear it from women all the time, women surgeons, women doctors. It's the micro and macro aggressions that the trainee has to go through that can significantly affect mood, ability, you know, innate sense of self-esteem. And it, it can be wearing and it can create dysfunction and it can also add that to the racism or the, the misperceptions that are involved in training programs and putting out a product that looks familiar to you because it looks like you versus it doesn't look like you all of that impacts into a, a and really we're still we're still just in a we're better than we were but we're, we still have so much to go you know uh we only have two minutes left with these extraordinary individuals i do want to just quickly bring up a slide of alex vaccine uh, journey because not only are you one of the groups who is um, less represented in the vaccines, but you also have a peanut allergy. And yes. I know people are very hesitant. Can you talk really briefly about that? Sure, vaccine hesitancy is a real issue. And I'm so thankful that American Indians chose to participate in the trial when they really have no reason to do that. Because if we think of the impact that researchers have had on our people, that's a real history and we have to acknowledge that. And I'm just gonna take a second to also call out the medical students on you know, Twitter and Instagram that are taking their vaccine pick and saying, look at my microchip. And that's horrible and we really need to change that. Yeah, that's a good point. There's no microchip. I mean, a lot of my colleagues have been joking about it too in private chat groups, how the government's now tracking them. The government's been tracking you people and they call, it's your cell phone and uh, let me tell you, so, and your credit cards and everything else that you do. We wanna thank you guys so much for joining us, really, Lash Nolan, Alec, Kalec, and you just uh, have really shown a beautiful light on, uh, I think, what's gonna be an impressive future. And I'm just so happy that Sujana found you two and got you to join us. She worked hard at that. Thank you for responding to the stalker in me. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Uh, we could talk to you forever. Guys, please follow them on Twitter. They are amazing. They will teach you something new every single day. Uh, we want to thank our production team from DigiMentors. Uh, we could not make this work without them. So we want to reach out to our producers, Rose Horowitz, Fondana Menon, Julia Weeks. Uh, Cable Ramanathan does our video highlights. Shristi does our beautiful design. And Nicole Lewis provides the voiceover that you hear at the beginning of each show. Um, we want to introduce our guests for next week, Marina. Yeah, we're so excited to have our guest, uh, Apoorva Mandeville is joining us and she is a New York Times health reporter and um, really very au courant of everything that's going on. And we're gonna also talk to Dr. Nina Shapiro, who is a contributor uh, at Forbes Health and she's a pediatric ENT surgeon. See how Soju kind of sneaks her people in? I'm just of saying. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so very safe, everyone. Get the shot, wear your mask. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.
childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. Get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a 99 cents any-sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.